Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. This is your host, Paul, and today we're going to be talking with Mr. David Ewalt, the author of Of Dice and Men, the story of Dungeons and Dragons and the people who play it, published by Scribner. Welcome to the show, David. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So as is the custom on the the New Books Network, maybe you could just start uh, with a little bit about uh, your background uh, in general and then maybe specifically uh, with gaming and Dungeons and Dragons. Well, uh, I'm a journalist. I'm a business and tech journalist. I'm a contributing editor to Forbes magazine, and I work with Reuters, and I've been covering tech and uh, the gaming world as part of that, video games for you know, for, for years now. And that all comes from as a kid, I was a gamer, you know, I was the Nintendo generation, you know, I had my, my NES growing up and played a lot of, of video games, but also played a lot of tabletop games, was really into games like Dungeons and Dragons and, and other board games. So that was kind of my background coming into it as an adult and learning about industry and starting to think, hey, you know, maybe there's something about the, the business and the importance of these games that I can look into as well. So what was the genesis of, of, of Dyson Men specifically? Well, I guess where it really came from is so I was at the time I was uh, I was an editor at Forbes and I was covering the video game industry for them. And it was an area that Forbes had never really covered before. But video games has become such a large industry. I mean, it's a you know, $60 billion global business. It's bigger than TV, bigger than music. So I was picking up a lot of this coverage and, and, and writing about video games. And I started going to... Uh, industry conventions and just to kind of get to know the people in the industry and get to know what the issues were when I would meet video game executives, people from companies like Electronic Arts or Activision Blizzard. And when I'd meet top designers, I would ask them, you know, some of the same questions. And one of the questions I asked everybody was, well, what made you want to make video games for a living? Why are you doing this? And overwhelmingly, like really like, you know, eight or nine times out of ten, the answer was, oh, I played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons when I was a kid. <laughs> and it, it struck me so strong and just like, wow, this game was really important and influential, not just in people's lives. Like it means a lot to the people who played it. But I think without of it, the modern video game industry, this you know massive global industry that makes lots of money and, you know, people spend huge amounts of their lives with this medium, I don't think it would exist the way it does today if it, if it wasn't for Dungeons and Dragons and other role-playing games. So that made me really want to dig into it and find out, well, what are these games? Like, what are role-playing games? What makes them special? What is Dungeons and Dragons? Where did it come from? It really is. So that segues really nicely into my next question, which, um, although, you know, entire books have been run this, and including your own in part, just broadly speaking, um, what are the kind of origins of D&D? It has some really fascinating um, background in, in wargaming, um, which you talk about uh, a little bit in your Google talk that you that you gave. Um, mm-hmm. But where does this uh, unique game owe its heritage to? 
Well, it's really, as you mentioned, this comes out of the, the realm of war, war games. And people hear that name, they don't often know what to think. But war games were really a, a, a particularly, you know, they were a real quantified kind of of game and pastime in the past. Today you hear war games, you think like, oh, the army's doing something out in the desert. But war games really go back to chess. I mean, chess was was invented as kind of a a board game analogy for a real battle. You know, it was a way to think about, oh, these are the players on a battlefield. These are how how uh, uh, units move in relationship with each other. And this is how a battle plays out. Chess is kind of a very abstract representation of that. But over the millennia since chess was invented, people created war games that were much more specifically about battle. And these are the kind of things that you may have seen where people have got like little toy soldiers. They've got, you know, a little metal figure that is a representing a, a cavalry unit or a little uh, a cannon unit or some halberdiers or something like that. And throughout uh, human history, people have used these games not just to entertain, but also to train and to learn about uh, decision making and battle, to learn strategy. Um, to learn theory and also to entertain themselves. So these games have been big at various times over the last couple thousand years, but they really uh, started to take off in the 18th century. They were really big. Um, the Prussians actually had war games so well defined and so popular that like it was standard issue for for Prussian army officers were given like this this particular war game but taking their pack onto the battlefield and the train with between between sessions to hang out with other soldiers so long story short a lot of these games came back to the United States after the world wars and you had this environment in the US where a lot of veterans had fallen in love with these games and just liked playing them for fun um, and that sort of environment of People who like thoughtful games that represent something bigger than just what's on the table. There was a whole community of these guys, you know, around the U.S., particularly in the 50s and 60s. And that was sort of the fertile soil from which role-playing games started to be born. You know, these guys who were just really dedicated hobbyists who liked war games and wanted to build something better. What makes D&D so unique was the idea of role-playing or a fantasy role-playing game, which is this combination of both acting and gaming at the same time, was that a completely new thing that people like Arneson and Gygax invented in the 1970s, or did it have was was there a precedent for that that was somewhat close to that idea of role-playing? Yeah, that's one of the things I was really surprised to, to learn about D and D is that there was a real a real intellectual leap. That happened here. And these games, nothing like it had ever really been made before. And it helps to understand when we're talking about war games, these are always, you know, a guy is playing on one side. I'm in control of this army. I've got a bunch of lead figurines. Each one of these figurines on the table represents an entire battalion. You know, this is my, these are my halberdiers. These are my cavalry. Games had always been played from like this sort of third person perspective of I'm controlling different units, different groups. I'm sort of the omniscient overseer pushing these things around the board. The thing about role playing games was somebody said, well, sure, I love controlling an entire army, but wouldn't it be cool if I could just control one of the soldiers? 
couldn't I just be a hero? Instead of being an entire army, I want to be one guy, one interesting guy. And why does I even have to be one guy from history? I don't want to just be one French soldier. What if I'm a wizard? What if I'm a knight? Like, what if I'm one of these great heroic fantasy archetypes? And I'm just going to control that one character. I am this guy. And that was sort of the big intellectual leap of going from this is a game where I'm controlling lots of units to this is a game where I am this player. I am this guy. He is, is, is my sort of embodiment in the fantasy world or in the game world. And that was a big leap. I mean, part of the reason why these games caught on really fast, you know, for D&D was invented, first published in 1974. Within a couple of years, it was all over the globe and people were really responding to it. And that's one of the reasons why is literally no one had ever seen a game like that before where you actually had, you know, a quantified rule set for a way to play as a single hero. And it got even more exciting because that single hero wasn't around for just one game. You know, I might play a game of chess or a game of Monopoly or whatever, but, you know, two hours later after the game is over, we walk away from the board and it's forgotten. But the thing about these fantasy role-playing games was I'm going to play this hero and we're going to play for a couple hours. And then when this game session is over, we put it aside. And then when we come back to it later, I'm going to be that same hero. And that hero is going to grow and evolve and become more powerful and develop his own legends over time. And that was another thing no one had ever done. No one had ever said, hey, you know what? Let's continue these, these characters from game to game to game and build them up over time. It was just a whole new way of, of playing games and thinking about games and also of, of telling a story of you know, creating a legend around this character that you were playing at the table. That's interesting when you talk in the book about Tolkien and the Fellowship of the Ring and this idea of uh, almost a balanced party with a fighter and a magic user and a thief who are all coming together to accomplish some sort of goal. And uh, I find it interesting that Gygax, uh, the creator of D&D, actually didn't like Tolkien. He thought that Tolkien was sort of a plodding author to read and that there wasn't enough action compared with, I guess, some of the, the more pulpy um, kind of fantasy, uh, you know, Conan and uh, Lovecraft, uh, Lovecraft's works and things like that that Gygax was into. But it seems hard to escape Tolkien's influence at the same time when you look at Dungeons and Dragons, does it not? Yeah, it, it, there, there's a strong influence there. You know, Gygax was a big fan of writers like uh, Robert E. Howard from the Conan books and Fritz Lieber. And, you know, those were the people, authors that he preferred. But I tend to think that, you know, Gygax used to say that he was not influenced by Lord of the Rings at all. I think, I believe that he didn't like Lord of the Rings very much, but it's real hard to, you know, to deny the, the influence that Lord of the Rings probably had in this game. I mean, early editions of Dungeons and Dragons, you could play as a hobbit. Like, literally, hobbit was one of the races you could play as. Um, they were, you know, sued and had to change Hobbit to Halfling because they, that was a copyrighted word owned by the Tolkien estate. So, you know, the influence is clearly there. Maybe Gygax wanted to downplay it for legal reasons, but I don't doubt for a second that he definitely preferred other authors to Tolkien. You know, he was much more of the sort of Howard and and uh, and, and, and Lieber sort. But it, it is interesting to see, you know, the way that these 
fantasy authors and these genres really influence the game is that you do end up with these heroic archetypes, you know, that you need to have a certain balance in your party. You've got to have the wizard. You've got to have the knight. You've got to have the thief, you know, and it's some of that is, you know, straight up, you know, Joseph Campbell stuff of like, well, this is what it takes to make a hero and this is what characters should look like. But, um, you know, it's an interesting, interesting component of that. This game is not just, um, a, a battle simulator. Um, it's not just about fighting. It's about uh, making a story that lasts over time. And I think that's why there's such a strong link to these literary traditions, because as much as this is a game, it's also sort of a, a, a device for, for storytelling. And as you're talking, it's reminding me of the Dungeons and Dragons idea of a campaign setting, right? Where you have a box that isn't necessarily an adventure or a module or a quest. It's a place, a world where these things can unfold, which if, if you're going to compare it to a book or a set of books, that seems like a very Tolkien-esque idea of setting up a bunch of races and languages and conflicts mm-hmm. and then just saying, here's a world, you know, run with it. Totally. I mean, that's one of the things I think that people who don't, play Dungeons and Dragons or have never played don't understand. They think that, okay, well, this is a game where I get it. You roll some dice and you sort of simulate battles. You know, you go out and fight orcs. Look at this from like a business perspective. If I'm a company, let's say I'm, you know, I'm running TSR, Gary Gygax's company, which published Dungeons and Dragons. You can create the rules that tell people, okay, this is how you go out and fight an orc. Here's how you win these battles. But once you sell the rules to people, well, now they know how to play. You know, what are you going to sell them next? So what Dungeons and Dragons was really about and where, you know, the money really came into the company was creating worlds for people to play in. Um, Gygax, I think, is so fondly remembered, not because he created rules that people liked, but because he created worlds that people liked. Um, he most famously, you know, Gygax's own campaign setting was this world of Greyhawk and he had castles and lands and there were famous characters and heroes in it and some of them were were characters that came from his own games you know his players would invent these characters and they'd work their way into the world and then when he would publish adventures and world settings at tsr these would be you know this this is the color this is the world that 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 makes up where you're going to play and so that was the majority of of the business of what tsr did was not selling people rules but selling them settings selling them adventures, selling them stories. Um, and I think because that became the, the focus of the business, because that was a way for TSR to keep making money off of, off of clients, it also reinforced the idea that this is a storytelling game. It's not just, okay, sit down and I fight you and I won, game over. It's no, it's, it's really about story and about myth and about building a really interesting and convincing world for the players. Absolutely. And the players themselves seem to have changed somewhat or perhaps dramatically uh, during the history of Dungeons and Dragons, which I think would have had, is it four, over 40 years old now? Is my math right? Yeah, it's 43 yeah, years. Yeah, now. 43 years. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I think Dungeons and Dragons was initially definitely the domain of white 20 to 40 year old middle class uh, bright people who are maybe a little socially awkward, but I think this seems to be changing really dramatically. Even 
since I was acquainted with the hobby in uh, in the early mid 90s. I have a friend who works in London doing marketing, and as part of his work, he was working for a, a uh, large liquor conglomerate that was looking at studying um, what the cool kids are doing and in mm-hmm. what settings they uh, imbibe certain types of alcohol. So as a part of his job, my friend went to uh, a party from these uh, being held by these painfully cool London 20 somethings uh, <laughs> to kind of observe them for, you know, whatever it was, Bacardi or Diageo's purposes. And they were talking about their Dungeons and Dragons yeah, campaign. That's right? great. That's pretty different yeah. to me, right? Yeah, it's it's interesting how much the game has evolved. I mean, like you said, when it started in, in 74, it was coming out of this wargaming community. So the players were, were by and large, wargamers. A lot of them were veterans of World War II or the Korean War. So it would be older guys, you know, who were into a very particular kind of thing, who were really fascinated by history, in particular military history. Um, but when the game started going mainstream, I mean, in the early 80s, this game was a massive phenomenon, and you could buy it in toy stores. I mean, most kids, including me, you know, we got the first edition, you know, going into into KB Toys or into Toys R Us or something and buying it off the shelf just right next to uh, Monopoly or something like that. So that was a big change there. Suddenly there are kids uh, around the world playing this game, and that sort of changed the, the, the tone of it. Um, but one of the things that I think has been interesting in the last few years is I think it's kind of part and parcel with there's been a real renaissance of, of geekiness in recent years. Like geeky has become a, a, a cool thing. Um, I think this comes from, you know, in part it comes from, you know, our sort of social media and tech world. You know, people look up to people who are considered geeks, you know, guys like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and 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 people who are creating big companies that you know change our daily lives those are like the heroes of the 21st century you know people who are are computer nerds kind of people who may have played D&D when they were a kid um and so i think as you know geekiness has gotten cool again D&D has come back in a way that it never had before. Like in the 80s, D&D was hugely popular, but it was still seen as a really kind of geeky thing to do. Um, now, I think in a, in a, in a real way, it's, it's, it's cool. And it's, you get all kinds of people playing the game that never played it before. And that's helped too by the, the sort of cultural phenomenon of, you know, people who played D&D in the 80s growing up and creating their own media, writing their own books, telling their own stories. So you've got TV shows and movies and novels where people talk about D&D in really positive ways. I mean, the most popular sitcom on television, The Big Bang Theory, they play D&D on that show. Like, So there are millions of people around the world who have never played D&D but then turned on their favorite TV show and saw the people on the screen playing it and having fun. And I think that really opened up the audience for the game, and a lot of people were open to playing it and started playing it, which they never have before. It seems like not only has D&D's audience evolved, but D&D <laughs> itself uh, has evolved. I was wondering if you have any thoughts 
on D&D as a game and how you have observed it change from, you know, really early days, 1974, 1979, you know, those really early editions through second edition, third edition, fourth edition, fifth edition. What, what's, what's happened there to the game? So a, a lot has happened. I mean, kind of part of it is, as you say, like, you know, it goes back to the Wargamer thing. So the first generation of D&D, the first rule set was very, uh, very Wargamey, very uh, dice driven. It was, um, did not have a ton of story to it necessarily. It was often a lot more exploratory um, and a lot more sort of random roll the dice. I think over time, the st- game has become more story focused. Um, also, what what you've seen is, you know, I was saying earlier how, like, if you're the publisher of D&D, you can sell the rules once, and then you've got a sell setting. Well, that's true in the short run, but this is a game that's been around for 40-some years. So every, you know, five, six, seven years or so, the company who owns the game has come up with a new rule set. You know, just to, okay, well, now you got to buy the rules over again, but also because they sort of tweak it to match uh, tastes and players' interests at the time. So we're now on the – with you know, they call it fifth edition. There's been, you know, depending on how you count them, there might've been a lot more than five, but the current edition is kind of fifth edition. And each edition has sort of had their own strengths and weaknesses. Some are, you know, more complicated rules, some are rules light. And this current one I think is, is a, is a really great rule set. And it's interesting because I think they've pulled back on the actual rules in the sense that, it used to be, you know, anytime you want to do anything in the game, whether it's fight somebody or climb a tree or try to convince somebody to do something for you, like any sort of action in game, some of the earlier rule sets, you had to roll a bunch of dice. And some of the earlier rule sets, like literally quantified all of those things. Like there would be specific rules for climbing a tree in some past editions. And that made for very big, weighty rule books. And for some players, that's awesome. You know, there's a certain kind of player who really enjoys rules and quantification and they want a system that tells them, okay, if you want to climb a tree, these are the exact rules you apply. These are the exact dice you roll. This is how you do it. The new edition steps away from all that. And so fifth edition kind of says for a lot of stuff, you don't even need to roll any dice. There are no rules. We're going to put that power into the hands of the dungeon master. The dungeon master is the guy who is like the referee, who is telling the story and moderating the game for the players. And by taking away some of the rules and giving more of that power to the dungeon master, I think it allows the game to be much more story focused, to be much more about, okay, let's, create these myths together let's create a legend like let's create a cool story that we all enjoy and that we all can have fun with it's less about quantifying every single action and having like a really complicated rule set and it's more about like let's tell a story together and i think that's probably been the big trend over the years is deemed to become more about telling a story together and that's probably also why the game has become more mainstream and been embraced by more players because you don't have to be super nerdy and also just you don't have to memorize you know thousands of rules these days you don't have to have six books that tell you how to climb a tree you know nowadays you can just tell your dungeon master i'm going to climb that tree and he says okay you're at the top of the tree um and it's 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 been a shift i think towards towards mainstreaming the game but also sort of emphasizing what's inherently good about the game is that it's about creating stories yeah i remember 
in I think second edition, there was the Book of Wilderness, which would actually enable you to keep track of how many degrees Fahrenheit your character was <laughs> yeah. at any <laughs> any given moment and all the modifiers for whether he's wearing furs and the humidity outside and so that definitely seems like the one extreme that you're talking about there um versus that you know that's obviously very different from how things yeah. seem to be today um, yeah. with with fifth edition and those games, you know, those super rule-heavy games can be a lot of fun. People, people have not abandoned the old rule sets. You know, I've gone to conventions and met people who play. There are still people who've been playing like the 1974 original D and D rules who've been playing those for 40 years and have never played anything else. There are still people that are playing the 1989 rules, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, Second Edition. There are still people playing that and they enjoy it. And those games are fun for a different reason. Like the really rule-heavy games. I found to be entertaining because it, it feels sort of like maybe it's less story focused, but it's kind of, I find the appeal kind of like it feels like hacking or like solving a puzzle. And it's exciting to look at those giant piles of rules and find yourself in a situation, you know, like, oh, we have to kill this dragon. Or maybe it's just like we have to, you know, get out of this room. But it's really interesting to sort of sit down with a giant rule set and say, like, okay, how can I how can I bend these rules to my will? Like, I know that this is the rigid framework that I exist in. You know, how can I figure out you know, what rules can I apply to make this work for me? And it's very much sort of fits that, you know, kind of geeky uh, uh, computer programmer. Like there's a reason why a lot of D and D players, you know, come from like these tech backgrounds it's because it sort of fits into that mindset and that way of thinking of like, if you're good at, at creating computer code, you're probably good at sitting down with some of these rule sets and, and figuring out like how to hack together a strong character and how to win an adventure. It's it's a different kind of gameplay, but it still can be very fun and engaging in its own way. Absolutely. Um, it seems that a lot of modern mainstream leisure activities, like you were talking about gaming, you know, literature, film, owe a debt of gratitude to Dungeons and Dragons. Tim Cask, one of the early editors on D&D joked about sending a letter to um, uh, J.K. Rowling, the mm -hmm. author of the Harry Potter series, and say, hey, you like mind throwing us 0.1% of your royalties <laughs> because like you kind of owe us. Uh, where do you see D&D's influence uh, these days? Any unexpected areas that you've, you've seen the D&D tendrils going into? Sure. Um, I think it's... Uh... One of the things as I was writing the book that really started to to surprise me was just how pervasive D&D's cultural influence is. Uh, to start with, I think D&D helped mainstream fantasy fiction. Certainly people read and consumed fantasy fiction before D&D. I mean, we've talked about like, you know, the Conan books and, and Lord of the Rings and stuff like that. But they were they were still relatively sort of, you know, niche, you know, college students and, and you know, geeky types and people like that who are into science fiction and stuff like that. D&D helped uh, fantasy fiction move into the mainstream um, because so many kids in the 80s were playing D&D. Like that made them receptive audiences for these stories about knights and wizards and heroes. And so at a very basic level, I think, you know, our modern you know, landscape where you've got, you know, Game of Thrones being one of the most popular TV shows out there and, you know, fantasy movies and things like that. I think that it was a huge debt to Dungeons and Dragons sort of mainstreaming this genre. Um, within that, there's a lot of things that specifically like there are ideas and concepts 
in fantasy fiction today, which really came from D&D. You know, if you play a fantasy game or if you watch a fantasy thing where there's a cleric, I mean, the idea of a cleric, meaning like a fighting priest or a priest who can use magic to heal people, that is a super common archetype in modern uh, fantasy. You see it in video games, you see it in movies all the time. Clerics were literally invented for D&D. Like that idea of a wizard, of a, like a wizard who has a god and who heals people through prayers, like that directly came from D&D. And now every fantasy game out there, like you can always play clerics. And that wouldn't exist if somebody hadn't thought it up for D&D. Um, another related note there is, you know, the modern video game industry, not just because kids um, – grew up playing the game and then wanted to make their own games when they were older. But because um, this idea of I have a single hero and I'm going to play as this hero and I'm going to gain experience and get stronger, that came from D&D. That was a new idea for these fantasy games. And now, you know, every, you know, if you're playing Breath of the Wild, you know, the new Legend of Zelda game, or if you played Skyrim or any of the other Elder Scrolls games or any of these huge video game franchises, that idea of I'm going to play a single hero and I'm going to get more powerful and, and, and gain experience, that's a D&D idea. So D&D, again, like the whole video game industry. But then, you know, probably in the larger sense, the influences that I found most surprising was learning how many people who are not necessarily involved in gaming or fantasy but who consumed D&D as a kid went on to become content creators. So it's people like, you know, on one end of the spectrum, you get people like um, the guys who created Game of Thrones, okay, uh, the two producers who created that. Um, they played D&D as a kid, and that got them interested in telling stories. Um, the director of, of Iron Man, of all those movies, John Favreau, the famous Hollywood director, John Favreau doesn't make fantasy movies. He doesn't make anything that looks like D&D. But Favreau has said in interviews that he played D&D as a kid, and it was D&D that made him interested in telling stories. That that idea of sitting down at a table, at a table with your friends and creating a story together, that made him want to become a filmmaker and a director. Uh, there's millions of novelists you know, who were inspired by their youth playing role-playing games, even if they're not writing about fantasy worlds. Um, you know, guys like Juno Diaz, who's not, I mean, he's not writing fantasy novels. He's writing great books and sometimes they have some geeky themes to them because that's who he is. But that's another guy who like played D and D when he was younger and it taught him how to tell a story. And there's just so many examples of that, of people who grew up playing this game and it inspired them to create. And I think that's probably the way that it's most influential, not even the direct like, okay, D&D created this sort of gaming and fantasy world, but D&D inspired a whole generation to create their own stories and their own art. And I think that's – it's kind of profound that this game, which you know was started by a couple of geeky dudes for their friends in the wargaming community, really became you know the spark that lit off a whole, a whole generation of artistic endeavors. I think it's, it's, it's really special. Preaching to the choir. <laughs> I, I definitely, uh, I definitely agree. Uh, in your book, you talk about uh, what you call your pilgrimage to GaryCon, the uh, RPG convention in Geneva Falls, Gary Gygax's hometown, um, in his memory. What was that experience like for you? So, I mean, I should say, as a kid, you know, so I played a ton of D and D as a kid, and 
you know, like lots of other, other boys in my generation and, and some girls, um, you would pick up these books and like they were sort of these mysterious sort of like artifacts. They were so weird and cool and they had these great drawings on them and I saw pictures of monsters and weapons and they were just uh, amazing to look at. And one of the things that was mysterious and awesome about them was this name on the cover all too frequently. You'd see Gary Gygax would be the author of them. And as a kid, you don't really know who Gary Gygax is, aside from, oh, he's the guy who created Dungeons and Dragons. But he became sort of, for a lot of us, like this mythic character. Like, this is the guy who made it possible for have to have all these stories and to have all this fun with my friends. Like, this is the guy we owe it to. So there was a whole generation of people who grew up, you know, Gary Gygax is one of their heroes. It's like, well, this is the guy who created my hobby that, you know, allows me to have fun with my friends. And so when the time came to go to this convention, you know, Gary died a couple of years ago and uh, his, his kids uh, after his funeral, like they went to uh, a, a local spot where, you know, they're in town and, just got all those friends together to play games together. And it quickly became a tradition. Like every year they're going to have a convention, Gary con in Gary's honor, and just a chance for people to come to his hometown and play games together. And so I jumped at the chance to go to them. I think I went to the, to the third annual one, but um, it's amazing just to go to that town and sort of walk around and see these places like, Oh, this is where Gary lived when he wrote Dungeons and Dragons, or this is where, the hobby shop was that that he owned and that TSR, his company, owned this hobby shop that could sell these these products because, like, as a kid, it just seemed so far away and alien and cool. But to go there and to and to see those things was just sort of – it was just kind of mind-blowing. Like, oh, yeah, I always thought about this when I was a kid, but this is the place. And then the most amazing thing, of course, is going to the convention – and it's full of people from the early days of the hobby, people who worked with Gary, people who wrote these adventures and wrote these rule sets. Um, some of the characters in these worlds, you know, I mentioned like Gary's world of Greyhawk with some of these heroes. You know, a lot of the people in the Greyhawk world, like the legendary heroes, were players from his games. You know, characters like like Morden Kanan and Iraq and Big B and you know these were people who played in his home game. And if you go to CarryCon, you can meet those guys, those players who created these legendary characters. And it, it, you know, if you didn't play the game, you know, a lot of people might be like, "Why well, don't you know? Why is that so cool?" And the closest thing I can sort of relate it to is it's like if it's like if you were a Harry Potter fan, it's sort of like going to Hogwarts. And at the very least, you know, you're not meeting Harry Potter, but you meet like the kid that that she based Harry Potter on. Or like if 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 Rowling had a neighbor who looked like Snape and that's what she decided to make Snape look like in the books, like you could meet that guy. And just like that sort of vicarious, like, wow, like I'm really connecting with this world that I love so much. It's just exciting and wonderful. And uh, they do it every year. So I, I always urge people, if you're into D&D and if you're into uh, fantasy gaming, it's a great convention to go to. It's just a lot of fun to, to participate. What do you see next for Dungeons and Dragons? I mean, virtual reality seems like it's a burgeoning new industry within gaming. That seems an obvious next step. Roll twenty for online gaming, tabletop gaming is booming. Um, what's what? What do you see next? Or will it always will there always be that dining room table following with friends for for D and D? What do you think will happen? It's a really interesting question. I think on one level, you always will have the dining room table because I think the strength of, of Dungeons & Dragons, the strength of any role-playing game, is that it's different from 
video games. It offers something that other games can't. It offers that social experience. And people who play D&D, I think most of them will tell you that that's best about it is not just, you know, the game, but it's, oh, you know, we have a, I know every week or every two weeks, I've got this time scheduled with my friends and I'm going to sit down with them in person and we're going to share an experience together. It's a social game. And so I don't think that's ever going to go away because I think that's strength. And I think that one of the reasons actually why D&D has kind of boomed in recent years is because people who grew up playing video games and people who grew up uh, on the Internet, people who played, you know, games like World of Warcraft, they played games which were inspired by Dungeons and Dragons, but which were, you know, over the Internet. People who were into that then discovered, oh, wait, there's a game where I can do this exact activity, but I can do it at a table with people and have this social experience. Like, I think that's that's a new idea to a whole generation of gamers. They're like, oh, wow, it's so much fun to actually be in the same room as other people. And that's why they enjoy it. So I don't think that's ever going to go away because I think that's one of the main draws. But as you point out, there are new technologies, um, things like Roll20, which is a, a web-based solution. It's kind of sort of like a like a video conferencing solution allowing you to play D&D and to have this social experience with people around the world. And that's I think really important number one cuz sometimes it's hard to get all your friends into one place, but also, you know, what if your friends move away and you still want to keep playing D&D? It's great to be able to have these these electronic versions that allow you to have some semblance of that social interaction to still, you know, see people's faces on a webcam, to still see a, a common board that you all share. And I think technology uh, is allowing us to do that in a whole new way. Um, one of the other things that you mentioned that's super exciting is virtual reality. Uh, because as VR gets better, then we can really simulate and match that dining room table experience. You know, if you and all your friends put on VR headsets and you all have your custom avatars and you log into sort of like a, a virtual reality game room. Now I can find like, I can actually sit at the table and I can look around. I can look left and see the dungeon master I can look right and see some of my friends. Like, and as VR gets better and better, I think it's going to come closer and closer to the actual in-person experience. And that's probably, you know, the most exciting thing happening to the hobby right now is I'd love to see, you know, there's already some really interesting VR implementations of role-playing games in D&D, but as these products get better and better and as virtual worlds get more accurate, I think it's going to be – you're going to have some amazing virtual reality implementations of games like this, and it's going to probably be the future of the hobby because, you know, it's hard to get people into the same room once a week, but it's a lot easier if you can just be like, hey, you know, no matter where you are, log on to the computer at 9 p.m. and we'll all meet up in this, in this virtual game room. In the book, you talk about uh, a campaign that you are playing in. Uh, the byline under your name says David <laughs> M. Ewald, level 15 cleric. Mm -hmm. And you also talk about uh, dungeon mastering a game for your friends. What's the state of your your D and D involvement uh, today? So I'm still I'm still playing uh, with the same group of guys that I wrote about in the book. Um, you know, it's it's hard, you know, as I'm saying, you know, it, it's hard to, to get together. We don't play as often as we'd like, you know, families and jobs and things like that get in the way. But we still make a point and try to meet up as often as, as, often as possible. Uh, the Vampire World campaign that I read about in the book uh, did come to a conclusion. That was just like a, the story reached an end, um, uh, which is an interesting thing about D&D, too, is that it doesn't, you know, it can go on for years and years and years, but there can reach a narrative point where, you know, at some point, 
Frodo tosses the ring into Mount Doom and the story comes to an end and you move on to something else. And that's what we did with Vampire World. Um, we came to a conclusion with that story. And I've been meaning to write up a big, you know, sort of summary of what happened in that campaign, which I'll probably get to at some point. But we finished up with that, and Morgan, my dungeon master from that campaign, uh, started a new campaign for us, which we're still in the early days of, but it's really interesting. It's kind of um, about this uh, uh, this world where sort of like a best thing I can describe it without getting too much details is it's kind of like a multiverse where you kind of move from place to place and each, each place has like, it's, there's like a, a city of elves and a city of dwarves. Instead of like each, each city has its own theme. I'm not doing a good, great job of describing it, but it's a, it's an exciting way of playing. And, and because it allows for like each session, if we go to a different place in this world, it's kind of like we're moving from story genre to story genre or from, uh, uh, you know, setting to setting, um, which is one of the cool things you can do in a role-playing game. If I'm playing a video game, you know, a company has to program that video game, and they can say, okay, this is a fantasy setting. We're putting this in, like, a snowy landscape, and all the heroes are Vikings, and there are dragons. I have to hard-code that setting in. But in a role-playing game like the game we're playing now, like one week we can be in a sort of sylvan wooded area full of elves. And then as we continue our travels, the next week we're in like a dark, urban, grim sort of uh, uh, film noir cityscape, you know, solving a mystery and like – you can't do that in other games, but we can get these really cool sort of convoluted and, and, and fascinating stories you can build in a role-playing game world. Um, I'm also still running my own game as much as I can, uh, the one I write about a little bit in the book. It's been interesting creating my own story that way and seeing how much the job of a dungeon master is kind of to create the overarching narrative and to say, okay, this is the world you're in, but a dungeon master can't always choose the direction the story goes. It's not like being a novelist. If I were a fantasy novel, I'm in charge. And I say how it begins, what happens in the middle, and how it ends. But if I'm a dungeon master, I create the settings, and then my players might might do something totally different than what I ever expected. I might want them to go and save the princess, and they decide, no, I don't, I don't like that princess. She's a jerk. Let's go kill the dragon instead. And you have to roll with that if you're a dungeon master. So it's really fascinating for the dungeon master to see how the story evolves in ways that they had anticipated. And I think that's what makes it interesting for them, too, is it's not just, you know, sit down and let me tell you a story. It's sit down and you tell me where my story goes. It's uh, it's just amazing to see all the different interpretations and variations that uh, that dungeon masters take on on the game and how many homebrew settings there really are in the world. It's it's there's such a variety out there in terms of uh, what people do with the game. And wrapping up, what's next for you in terms of uh, writing? Do you have another book planned? Uh, will it be on the same subject? What's next? Well, actually, it's funny you mentioned it because I have a, a book coming out next year. It's about virtual reality. Um, and in part because of, you know, my interest in these sort of uh, settings and storytelling words and coming to it out of out of Dungeons and Dragons. But also um, as a tech reporter, a couple of years ago, I started you know, following things like Oculus Rift, um, building the, uh, the the their headset and having a, a Kickstarter campaign again bought by Facebook, and I was covering that company a lot for Forbes, and it sort of developed into this uh, interest for me of 
the technology and how much it's going to change the world. Uh, so the next book is a history of VR, talking about where the technology came from. Um, this goes, you know, all the way back to, you know, ancient theater, um, coming up through, you know, the invention of stereoscopy and 3D film and pictures, and then into the modern industry of virtual reality and how it's being used in lots of different industries, you know, how it's being used in science and medicine, in entertainment, in militaries, and just how much this is going to transform the world of the 21st century. So that comes out uh, early next year in 2018. And uh, I continue to cover, you know, I'm still writing for, for Forbes and other outlets and um, people can follow me on, on, Twitter, DeWalt, or go to my website, davidemewalt.com, and I've got, you know, every time I've got a new story or something new I've written, it's going to go up there. Fantastic. Well, can't thank you enough, David, for being on the show to talk about your fantastic book of Dice and Men, the story of Dungeons and Dragons and the people who play it. Thank you so much for having me. It was a fun conversation. 